Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. I had these snow boots on. The snow was very high in New York. The streets were rather impassable, but I I actually felt like I was uh, flying to the UN that day. The story of how an American diplomat, despite resistance, helped to launch an historic court to uphold human rights. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. At the end of World War II, the world's conscience was shocked when the horrors of Nazi depravity came into full view. Ghoulish scenes of concentration camps surfaced for the first time. And this coincided with another remarkable development. War crimes tribunals in Germany as well as Japan placed the perpetrators on trial for their crimes. Legal rules at the time were imperfect, criticized by some as one-sided victor's justice. But the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials were widely viewed as an important step. They asserted the rule of law and human rights after dark years of chaos and barbarism. I think it's a certain catharsis uh, for the victim to, to come to court and to testify. Uh, he or she gets it off his chest. Gabrielle Kirk McDonald, a former U.S. District Court judge, presided over the U.N. Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. It allows them to go forward and lead, lead their life in a better way because they feel like, and, I, and again, it's my opinion, they feel like that they're part of, of a system that responds to crimes not by committing more crimes, n- not by meeting out vengeance, but but by the application of the rule of law. So I think that encourages them to go back, perhaps, to their own community and say, you know what, maybe there's another way. It was very important that they be put on trial for, for the future, for all of mankind. And it's important today that we realize this. The late Walter Cronkite, longtime CBS News anchor, covered the Nazi trials in Nuremberg, Germany, as a young journalist. If we are to have a lasting peace in the world, we are going to have to have some system of international law and order. We're going to have to yield some sovereignty to do that. All the nations of the world will have to do that, yielding up to an international system of order and law. The importance of Nuremberg was it did establish this precedent for this kind of legal action and this kind of court. 
But when the World War II tribunals completed their prosecutions, many observers felt this left a legal void. If new war crimes were committed, temporary courts would have to be started from scratch with little continuity or institutional stability. So for decades, a determined band of human rights advocates pressed for creation of a permanent tribunal to prosecute the worst crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the honor to declare open this United Nations Diplomatic Conference on the establishment of the International Criminal Court. I invite the participants to observe one minute of silence for prayer or meditation. Rome, Italy, July 1998. UN Secretary General Kofi Annan attended a gathering of nations where the treaty for the new court was formally adopted. People all over the world want to know that humanity can strike back, that whatever and whenever genocide, war crimes, or other such violations are committed, there is a court before which the criminal can be held to account, a court that puts an end to a global culture of impunity, a court where all individuals in a government hierarchy or military hierarchy, without exception, from rulers to private soldiers, must answer for their actions. The Rome Treaty envisioned a human rights court system that would operate in The Hague with judges and prosecutors appointed from around the world. But the court would have jurisdiction over only nations that ratify the treaty. When the required minimum of ratifications was reached in 2002, the International Criminal Court came into effect. The first step toward full ratification is for a nation to sign the treaty, which indicates basic support. But with many American conservatives skeptical of the new court as a potential runaway train that could restrict military decisions, obtaining U.S. signature was a bold step. David Sheffer served as the State Department's ambassador for war crimes issues under President Bill Clinton. He recalled the events in a recent memoir, All the Missing Souls. On December 31st, 2000, only three weeks away from the end of the Clinton administration on January 20th of 2001, I boarded a, an Amtrak train in Washington very early in the morning uh, to New York. And the reason, uh, at least I, why, why I was on a train, is we had a huge snowstorm in Washington and the, the planes were not taking off. So I had to get to New York. Why did I have to get to New York that morning? Well, it's because President Clinton was at Camp David and for several days, he was examining the pros and cons of, of signing the Rome Statute to the International Criminal Court so that the United States would at least be a signatory nation. That doesn't mean it's a ratified nation. That requires Senate uh, uh, approval you know, for ratification of a treaty. But the first step is signing it. Which signals an intent to consider ratification. Yeah, exactly. And... President Clinton had to decide whether or not this was, that was the last possible day to sign the Rome Statute under the terms of the treaties. After that, you could only accede to it. Uh, and certainly it was my judgment, being the top negotiator for the U.S. government on this treaty, that we needed to have that credibility as a signatory to actually prevail to protect U.S. interests in the treaty regime. 
uh, fairly fully realizing that ratification was many, many years off in anyone's dreamland, you know, for this treaty at that, t- at that point. A powerful voice objecting to the U.S. ratification of the treaty was Jesse Helms of North Carolina, who died in 2008. He was an arch conservative who once led a 16-day Senate filibuster to prevent Martin Luther King Day from becoming a federal holiday. In the year 2000, Helms chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, the court supporters argued that Americans should be willing to sacrifice some of their sovereignty for the noble cause of international justice. Well then, international law did not defeat Hitler, nor did it win the Cold War. What stopped the Nazi march across Europe and the communist march across the world was the principled projection of power by the world's greatest democracies. And that principled projection of force is the only thing that will ensure the peace and the security of the world in the future. With strong pressure from the Pentagon against signing the International Criminal Court Treaty and as President-elect George W. Bush prepared to take office, Bill Clinton faced a stark choice in the final weeks of his presidency in late 2000. Former Ambassador David Sheffer. President Clinton had not made up his mind on the, by the morning of December 31st. And remember, by midnight of that day, there's got to be a decision. Um, so I was instructed, get on the train, and maybe by the time you get to New York, he will have decided. President Clinton um, uh, was, a, was a tremendous fellow, and still is, of course, uh, very brilliant. Uh, he does make decisions at the last moment. And um, uh, so I got on the train, and while I was on the train, I was, I was communicating constantly with the, uh, my colleagues at the National Security Council at Camp David, uh, working through contingency drafts of statements and, and, you know, the whole slew of work that you do when you make a major decision of this nature. Well, when I got to New York, I was, I was going up the escalator at Penn Station, and uh, I had my snow boots on, it was snowing, it was, you know, just terrible outside. And um, as I was ascending the escalator, I got my, a call on my cell phone from uh, Secretary of State Albright, and uh, she told me, well, uh, David, I, I'm very pleased to inform you that the president has decided that the United States will sign the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and you are hereby delegated, you know, with plenary power to go to the UN and sign for the United States. What was that like? Well, um, I, it was a great moment for me because I had, I had fought eight long years for this. And frankly, as the book describes, there was a time after the Rome conference in 98 when I was sort of a lone voice within the U.S. government even to go back into the follow-on negotiations uh, for the Rome statute. So it had been a very, very long journey. And um, uh, as I write, you know, I, I, I had these snow boots on. The snow was very high in New York. The streets were rather impassable. But I, I actually felt like I was uh, flying to the UN that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was a good moment uh, for me. So after that dramatic scene, how did you feel when in 2002, President George W. Bush signed the American Service Members Protection Act, mm-hmm. 
which exempts U.S. military personnel from prosecution by the International Criminal Court. Right. This is a bill uh, that had been sponsored in the year 2000 by Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina and Congressman Tom DeLay of Texas. Uh, and we had vigorously opposed it in the Clinton administration, and I had lobbied uh, many members of Congress to just kill this thing, uh, and we succeeded. But, of course, when the Republican administration came in, it became a very attractive bill and was put forward again by those two individuals, Helms and, and DeLay, and certainly fit in with to, to the overall, I think, concept of, of President George W. Bush's approach to international justice and foreign policy. Um, so it was a very uh, difficult moment because it, it, it was a reversal of our leadership in international justice. And uh, I think history now shows how destructive that act was in 2002 with the American Service Members Protection Act, which, by the way, is still law in the United States. It has not been repealed. However, its punitive provisions have all been repealed by Congress, namely that uh, it, it was designed to punish other countries that joined the ICC. The International Criminal yeah, Court. Yeah, the International Criminal Court. And, you know, punished by withdrawing economic assistance, economic support funds, by shutting down bilateral military programs. Well, uh, 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 through the years, of course, uh, that works against U.S. interests. Uh, and even the Pentagon said, for gosh sakes, would you repeal this? Because we, you're destroying our mill-to-mill -mill relationships with so many countries because they're not going to walk away from the International Criminal Court. They are walking, they're, in fact, they're charging towards it. discussing human rights and the historic creation of the UN's International Criminal Court. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Upholding Human Rights with David Sheffer, please visit humanmedia.org. The vast majority of the world's nations have now joined the International Criminal Court, becoming what's known as states' parties. These include England and nearly all of Europe, Canada, all of Latin America, Australia, much of Africa. But to date, the big powers, including the United States, Russia, China, and India, have not ratified the treaty, nor have most nations in the Middle East, including Israel. Efforts to promote U.S. ratification of the court treaty have long met with stiff resistance from the Pentagon. Former U.S. War Crimes Ambassador David Sheffer is author of All the Missing Souls. The concern by the military is that situations could arise where American soldiers are operating on the territory of a state party to the treaty, and if the uh, atrocity crimes that fall within the jurisdiction of the court are committed by American soldiers on that state party territory, then there is the uh, strong possibility that American soldiers would fall within the jurisdiction of the court because they're operating on the territory of a state party to the court. Um, and 
And that, of course, goes against the grain of, of any exposure to a court of this character unless we're actually a party to, you know, the treaty of the court. Uh, so there's that, that, there's that basic objection uh, uh, right there. But I think the larger one is, and it's a little more conceptual, is that there's a great fear that um, the potential liability of the U.S. military uh, under the Rome Statute, whether we're a state party to the court or not, um, would tend to unduly influence the actual making of foreign policy, the actual making of military policy, because we'd always be looking over our shoulder to calculate our liability before the court before uh, f finalizing the plans for a military operation. And the military, of course, don't want to have that impediment in their thinking. But considering the content of, of the crimes that the court has jurisdiction over, war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, aggression, mm -hmm. Why would it be such a bad thing for military leaders in the United States to have to be looking over their shoulders mm -hmm. at the potential for legal liability right. for such crimes? Well, that has quite often been my argument, and uh, I, I think I express it at one point in the book because I truly believe, you know, that uh, we surely the United States is not in the business of planning and executing genocide or undertaking the kind of massive policy planning required for crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, etc. Remember, in order to prove or in order to indict before the court, um, the prosecutor has to demonstrate that he or she has identified the criminal intent of the perpetrator, of the leader that he's targeting. So, and that's very difficult. And, and you have to imagine that uh, if the United States has military or, or political figures who literally exercise criminal intent to commit these massive crimes against civilian populations, actually, they, they, they really should stand a, to account for it before a court of law. Uh, ideally, it would be an American court of law. Um, but we, you know, the, the, we, have to, we have to say to the world that we certainly stand for that proposition, that they must come to justice, individuals who have the criminal intent, uh, and then exercise it with respect to these types of crimes. The Financial Times recently reviewed your book. It said, no country has done more to create an international justice system than the United States or to keep itself outside the reach of that system. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yes, it is. Uh, that was a review by Professor Philippe Sands at the University of London, and, and th there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, and of course, that was, that was the complexity of so many of my negotiations in the 1990s. And I think the book sort of goes over that ground fairly, fairly extensively in that um, I was quite often in the paradoxical situation of pressing hard for, uh, for the logic of credible justice for the commission of these crimes uh, on foreign lands and by foreign perpetrators. And yet, 
having to sort of always make sure my backside was covered and that I wasn't bringing this concept to the shores of America, you know. And, um, was, was that awkward for you? Oh, of course it, of course it is. You know, my, some of my European colleagues in the negotiations had a, had a much easier time at it because their, their countries or their governments were not, uh, shall we say, so intimidated by the prospect of themselves being held to account. They had already gotten used to the European Court of Human Rights and the European Union institutions, and the Latin Americans were used to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. I mean, there were lots of things where they knew that there was a, shall we say, a supranational body that actually looked at human rights issues and dared to lecture them about it. Um, whereas for the United States, we haven't had that experience. And so uh, particularly, uh, but of course, there's a huge difference. The United States has a globally deployed military far in excess of everyone else. And so therefore, the, the Pentagon, and I think sometimes very justifiably, has concerns about, well, look, we're globally deployed. We need to ensure that that's done in a way that uh, protects our interests and doesn't un unduly subject our soldiers uh, and commanders to unwarranted claims of, of you know, criminal intent, et cetera. And I always use the word unwarranted because I said, I'm happy to negotiate anything that, that uh, insulates us from unwarranted and unfair allegations. I'll be there every day for you. But, uh, you know, if it's actually a credible allegation, if it's actually something that we don't have an immediate defense to because maybe something did go wrong, uh, don't ask me to, to, you know, negotiate immunity for you. I'm first, first thing I'm going to do is insist that you get prosecuted in the United States. And uh, if there's resistance there, then you know, we should take a look at where, where at the end of the day are you held accountable for these crimes? So, um, you know, that was, a, that was sort of a tension and, and I wasn't, you know, the best friend of the Pentagon through all of this. Um, but uh, that's, that's the nature of bureaucracy and of, 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 of governing as you have these debates internally. David Sheffer is now a law professor and director of the Center for International Human Rights at Northwestern University. In 2012, the UN Secretary General appointed him a special expert to the Khmer Rouge trials in Cambodia. In the 1990s, he worked for the U.S. State Department and the White House National Security Council. The first court we built was the Yugoslav Tribunal, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in 1993. And in The Hague. In The Hague. And uh, that has jurisdiction over all of the republics of the former Yugoslavia, which includes, of course, Serbia and the, the lower part of Serbia, which is Kosovo. Um, and, and even Macedonia is part of that jurisdiction. Um, well, of course, when we set up the court, you know, we were looking at all these atrocities occurring in the Balkans and, and how to get a handle on that and bring the perpetrators to justice. And, of course, it was not Americans doing any of that. Uh, but when Kosovo came along, we had a bombing campaign of both Kosovo and Serbia, a NATO bombing campaign that was part of the resistance to the Serb assault on, on Kosovo. And um, uh, you know, the prosecutor of the Yugoslav Tribunal uh, under pressure from various groups, uh, 
uh, opened up a file to review the legitimacy of the bombing campaign under the law of war and international humanitarian law. And um, when this became known, because usually a review, an informal review, is a secret process within a prosecutor's office, but the prosecutor herself kind of uh, blurted it out to a reporter one day. Carla Del Ponte. Yeah, Carla Del Ponte. And, of course, the moment that hit the newspapers, um, suddenly it became known to my bosses at the White House, et cetera, that uh, uh, we were under review, you know, by the Yugoslav Tribunal, the, what, the court that we supported so strongly. And uh, I, I, write, I write about how the National Security Advisor at that time, Sandy Berger, you know, I had to fly back to Washington from a, you know, a reasonable Christmas vacation uh, to kind of peel him off the ceiling because he was so angry that the United States was being subjected to a judicial inquiry by the Yugoslav Tribunal. And I explained to him that actually we had known this was on the prosecutor's desk since last May, you know, eight months earlier. It was very normal. You know, people lodge complaints to the prosecutor. She takes them in. She figures out what's going on. Uh, it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, but um, th there was a, automatically sort of the sense of resisting the prosecutor in her examination of, of these matters, and she needed our cooperation to get all the facts and understand, you know, what was the targeting decisions, et cetera, of the military. And for months I had to work that issue very, very hard within the bureaucracy to ultimately sort of open up that cooperative relationship with the tribunal to say, all right, you know, what are the 26 bombing hits that you are scrutinizing, okay? You know, what are your questions about each one? Let's answer those questions. Did we properly plan for each target? Did we understand where the civilians lived, et cetera, et cetera? So a degree of accountability. A degree of accountability. And, you know, it takes homework. you got to work it. But at the end of that process, the prosecutor determined that uh, there was not enough evidence there to sustain a charge of violation of the law of war. Since formally beginning its work in 2002, the International Criminal Court has received complaints from well over 100 countries concerning alleged crimes to be investigated. The prosecutor is looking into allegations in Latin America and Asia, but to date has focused prosecutions relating only to Africa. In April 2012, Liberian President Charles Taylor was convicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity at a trial held at the court under auspices of the Sierra Leone Tribunal. But has the court's role been muted because the world's most powerful nations have declined thus far to participate? It's a reality that if you had these other powerful states as part of the court, um, it would just give the court a tremendous additional boost of credibility in the international community. It would demonstrate to the tyrants and others who unleash these crimes that uh, actually they're in the extreme minority as to the legitimacy of doing so and of their capability to continue to do so because the major powers are on the other side of the fence and they're not, su they're not open to uh, you know, geopolitical strategizing <laughs> to, to respond uh, uh, to these atrocities. They're actually within the four corners of, of the Rome Statute, and, and that, is, that means, you know, one, one initial line of response is retribution, judicial retribution. Uh, you will be held to account in a court of law for the commission of these crimes, and guess what? The, uh, uh, you know, 
the most uh, serious sentence is, is life imprisonment. So, you know, welcome to the halls of justice. Um, I would like to see the United States on that side of the fence, obviously, instead of uh, anyone presuming that they could deal with us uh, in some sort of manipulative fashion to avoid accountability. Former U.S. Ambassador for War Crimes Issues David Sheffer. He is author of All the Missing Souls. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Liart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Upholding Human Rights with David Sheffer, is Humankind Program number 180. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org, and at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.